As we look around at our world and our society, we notice that it is crumbling before our eyes. And we can't help but notice that people are losing hope as it seems that the kingdom of darkness is winning. There is a gaze of despair on their faces and even in our own personal lives there are dark corners and valleys of torment that are inexpressible. And many of us are so burdened that we don't have even the slightest energy to share our burdens with others, even in the church. And some of those same sins that are found out in the world are found in the church in varying degrees. We often ask ourselves, can it get any worse than this? But the depravity of man always seems to surprise us. Everything seems to get worse. But, behind all of this, there is an unseen reality that God is at work and that God is still on the throne. And the truth is, He cannot be moved. He cannot be moved by man's evil. In fact, he works through that evil to bring about his good and holy results. And these results are more far-reaching than any man can ever attempt, as they are universal. That is to say, there is an end to all that is going on in the world, And that end will lead to his throne at his kingdom. As we entered this letter, there was a proclamation of the coming of the Son of God from Scripture, from John the Baptist, and from God himself. Then Jesus was driven into the wilderness to enter his first battle, the first battle of the war. He won this battle... And he continues on to fight this war. And now, as we see that John the Baptist's ministry is fading after he was arrested by Herod, Jesus' public ministry begins. And he is back in Galilee. He is back in a place that is more crowded than he was before. He was just in the wilderness where he was alone with Satan and the wild animals. But now he's back into a crowded area with his own people. And this is where prophecy is fulfilled, as it says, In the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And now he's walking through, shining this light. And how is this Light being shown. Well, he begins to proclaim. He begins to preach. Because the prophecy of the Messiah is not only about his coming, but it is also about him coming as a preacher. 
In fact, he comes as the greatest preacher ever known to man in order to proclaim the good news of the gospel of God to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. But what does this gospel entail? What does this good news involve? What does it entail? What is this gospel that Jesus came to proclaim to his people? Well, it is the gospel that comes from God about God. And the good news is that God is going to reign over his people and this world as king. The prophecies all point to God reigning in this world and that he himself will come to establish his kingdom in and through the Messiah. And guess what? The time has come. And the king has come. And since the king has come, he has all the right to say this. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. He is saying, I'm here. I've arrived. So guess what? The kingdom is here. The kingdom has arrived. This is a summary of his good news. Because who can bind up the brokenhearted? Who can liberate the captives? Who else but the king of all creation? It is God himself who can do all these things. It is God himself who has promised all these things. It is God who has promised to subdue the kingdom of darkness, to restore the sick, get rid of the effects of sin, and to forgive our sins. He says that the time is fulfilled because he has come to do exactly this. Jesus Christ has come to reign and God is now fulfilling his purpose for all of history as he will grant new life. He meant that the time was being fulfilled as he has come to walk among his people, preaching with authority like no other and healing the sick. He proclaimed this as the king making his way through his own creation. Not only that, but he was saying that it was the time of fulfillment then and it is still the time of fulfillment now. The kingdom of God comes in stages from then until now. It is not limited to just one period of time. All prophecy was being fulfilled at that moment and much of prophecy is yet to be fulfilled now. God himself comes in the flesh, preached about the kingdom of God's reign, died on the cross. He was exalted in that same flesh to a throne where he reigns right now as our king. We are probably saying to ourselves, well, it sure doesn't look like it. But we must remember What Jesus proclaimed, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. 
All the darkness that we see today in our world will soon vanish at the sight of our Lord when He returns as King. But as our prophet and king makes his proclamation, there is a call here to respond. There must be a response when God calls. And that is what he's doing here. He is calling all to himself. There must be a response from each of us. We either respond in acceptance of that message or we respond in rejection of that message. There is no in between. There is no anxious bench as some have taught. There is no preparationism. You either respond to the call in the positive or the negative. There is no, give me some time to think about it. That's another way of rejecting the message. There is no time. Either accept the message or reject it. So we see in our text the call of the kingdom, the goal of the kingdom, and finally the cost of the kingdom. First, the call of the kingdom. Because we must consider that this good news that Jesus preaches is not good news for everyone. As he makes this proclamation, he makes it as a prophet and the king of the kingdom that he preaches. And this king has come to conquer. He has come to conquer darkness, sin, evil, and its results, sickness, illness, and death. He has also come to conquer Satan, his minions, and all those who serve him. In our culture, there is this false portrait of Jesus. Of this soft weakling. Who seems to accept everyone. He's all-inclusive. This all-inclusive Jesus who would even accept Satan into his kingdom. But that's a false Jesus. Our Jesus came to conquer. He came to destroy Satan and all of his works. So he requires a response of allegiance. If we reject this king and his message, it won't go well with us. We will not receive the benefits of living under his reign and rule. We will not be restored and made new in our fellowship with God if we reject Him. So He calls us to repent, which means to turn from our sin and turn to our God. It means to change our minds about what we've always been told and what we've always believed out in the world. It means to turn and change our loyalties from being loyal to ourselves and the ways of the world and our sin to be loyal to our God and King Jesus. To repent means a lifestyle change. It calls all who are not even giving God a thought 
to change their minds and consider God and His gospel. This call to repent is much needed today. We don't need motivational speeches. We don't need affirmation speeches. We don't need light and feather-like tongues who seek to tickle our ears. In our world, we need a call to repent. Our world doesn't want to hear this. Our world wants to hear, God loves you unconditionally, no matter what. Even if you don't believe, believe in Him. He loves everyone. But they don't want to hear the call to repent. Including ourselves. How often do we don't want to hear it? We don't want to hear that our sin is actually sin and it will destroy us if we don't repent. We need to acknowledge our sin and turn to our God. Because if we don't see what we lack and how far we fall short, we will never see what we truly need to enter the kingdom of God. And other people can't do it for you. No one can repent for you. You must do it yourself. Now, as I've said before, repentance itself does not save you. And he doesn't just call us to swear allegiance. But he also calls us to trust. He calls us to trust. He says, repent and believe in the gospel. He says, turn from that life you knew and believe in this good news that God is going to reign. And that God is going to deliver you in Jesus Christ. To believe is not just knowledge. It's not just intellectual assent. It involves trusting in the message and the God of the message. It requires faith. Faith, according to our Shorter Catechism 86, is receiving and resting in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. And in order to truly repent, we must believe. The two go together. You can't have one without the other. Repentance must be accompanied with faith. Think of it, if we don't really believe in God, if we have no faith in God, and faith in Christ, how can we truly repent? If there is no God, if you don't believe in God, repentance is futile. Why repent? But God does exist. And he comes in the flesh and calls all to repent and believe. Because the way that Jesus reigns in the life of the Christian as king is through trust. If we are not trusting him in our daily lives, it will be evident 
that we are not part of the kingdom. This is a radical call to radical change. See, because the danger in many churches today is moralism. Moralism. Moralism can be found even in many reformed churches. Moralism seeks to wash the outside of the cup, but never truly believe inside. We may have been brought up in the church, catechized, come from a multi-generational Christian family, which is a blessing, but never truly believed in Christ. This form of moralism thrives in what is called cultural Christianity, which is the most common form of Christianity in America today. But it's just moralism. It's the washing of the outside of the cup. We know the Christian lingo. We know what to say when we're in church around other moralists. We know what to say when it comes to doctrine. We are so-called part of a so-called Christian culture where we all affirm the same things. Some are opposed to alcohol. Some are opposed to tobacco. Some are opposed to Elvis Presley. If anyone knows who that is these days. Some are opposed to rock and roll. We have the same dislikes share the same political views, we come from the same heritage, and we believe if we have all these things in common and we check every box, then we are part of that kingdom. Or it's evidence that we are part of the kingdom. So we have turned the gospel call into a call to become part of a social club. We have traded... The non-negotiable for the negotiable and the negotiable for the non-negotiable. And notice what I listed as part of cultural Christianity has little to do with Jesus. Now there's a few hot button issues that are out there right now where I would draw the line just as the co-founder of the OPC, uh, Jay Gresson Machen, did in the 20s and 30s where he drew the line between conservative Christianity and liberal Christianity and he said that liberal Christianity is not Christianity at all it's another religion but we must realize there are many moral people who have all of these things in common but who are not part of the kingdom why why Because they don't believe in Jesus as their king, as their God. They don't believe in his call to repent and believe in this gospel. Their morals are not grounded in Jesus. Their morals are grounded somewhere else. They're not grounded in Jesus, nor the glory of the Lord but sometimes in their own self-benefit. But we need to forget everything else and begin here, just as Mark begins 
And just as Jesus begins his ministry, begin with this call to repent and believe in the gospel. Forget everything else. His message at that moment was urgent and immediate. And so it is today. Now is always the right time to believe. So have you responded to this call? Have we responded to this call? Outside of the beauty of God's creation, it is hard to see God's kingdom in this world. But there is a representation. There is a representation of the kingdom of God right here on earth. The physical and visible manifestation of the kingdom of God that we have today is found right here in the church. Because truly, this call is a call to become a disciple. This is what it means to be a disciple of Christ. The true church is made up of those who have responded to the call to repent and believe, you and your household. We are representatives of the kingdom of God. But is that it? What is the evidence? What is the evidence that we have repented and believed? So secondly, we should ask, what does repentance and faith look like? What does it mean to repent and believe the gospel? What does it mean to be a disciple of Christ? What are we to do as a church? As Jesus is preaching about the kingdom, he is also going about establishing the kingdom, as it says, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon, or who we know as Peter, and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea. For they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me. Follow me. That answers all of those questions I just asked. We are called to follow Jesus. We are followers of Jesus Christ. This is the call from Jesus for anyone who comes into the church. Follow me. Follow me. And it says that they immediately left their nets and followed him. Now in the timeline, this is not the first time that Andrew and Peter saw and followed Jesus. They were originally the disciples of John the Baptist before he was arrested. Until the day that they saw Jesus walking by and John said, Behold, the Lamb of God. In other words, what he was saying is, it's time to leave me and follow him. Why? Because it's all about him. Follow him. So they were already acquainted with Jesus and his teaching. And at first reading, it may seem as if they actually quit their jobs and started to follow Jesus. We've probably heard this interpretation at camp meetings or from hippie Jesus followers. You must leave everything you know in order to follow Jesus and live off the land and nature and so on and so forth. 
But the truth is they eventually come back to work. They still had to work. They had to work for a living and would eventually have to go back to work as fishermen. They didn't just quit their jobs. They would eventually become full-time in their ministry and travel the world preaching the gospel. But what he is expressing here is the urgency of following Jesus at that moment. Not even their work should distract them from following Jesus Christ. So the question we ask ourselves is, who are we following? Are we following Jesus? Or are we following the world and all that it has to offer contrary to God's word? Because there are many leaders out there who are claiming our attention these days. There are many voices who claim they have the truth. There are voices in our own heads telling us to gratify our desires, the desires of our flesh, without a thought of God. So the question is, whose voice are we listening to? Not only that, but we can be distracted from truly following Jesus, not only by our own sin, but by those things that are noble in our lives. Things that are upheld by God in the scripture. Things that God call us to do for his glory. We can be distracted by our own families or by our jobs. Our work may take up all of our thought life and we have little thought for Jesus. These are all noble things that can become all that we care about. He doesn't necessarily ask you to quit your job. But do any of these things, any of these noble things, get in the way of following Jesus? So these disciples don't quit their jobs entirely just yet. But there is still an urgent call to follow Jesus. And they drop their nets to follow him. In other words, for us, whatever it is that distracts us, whatever it is that distracts us the most from our call to follow him, it may be time to drop it for the moment and heed his call. Because he is going to teach and lead us into whatever he wants us to do. So that helps us to answer, what is this call to follow him then? What is the goal of the kingdom as a church? As we are gathered here and as we seek to gather during the week. He doesn't call them just as a rabbi or a teacher who's going to teach them some revolutionary way of life. This is a call of a prophet who is going to speak the words of God to them and call them to radical commitment to the kingdom of God and to himself, which is new. This would be unlike the Old Testament prophets because it would have been blasphemous. 
for the master to call his servants to be totally devoted to him. But this is his call. And that's why he calls them with such urgency. And he doesn't just say, follow me, but he also explains what he's going to do with them. He's going to make them into disciples. He says, follow me in order to make them followers. He begins with the basics of the faith. So first, he's going to slowly reveal who he is to them. Not only his human nature as the Messiah, but also he's going to reveal to them his divine nature. Secondly, from understanding that, he is not only going to train them, but he is also going to equip them to do what he's doing here. What is he doing here? He is gathering his first disciples so that they may gather other disciples. That's why he says to Andrew and Peter, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And this is the same tradition that has been passed down to the church over the centuries to this very day. This was Jesus' mission and he makes it clear that it is our mission as well. He came to establish his kingdom and we are called into this kingdom so that we may call other men into the kingdom of God. Why? Because at its root, Christianity is a rescue religion. The goal of the kingdom is to gather men into the kingdom. Gathering men as Fishermen gather fish into the kingdom is another way of speaking about preaching the gospel in order to save their souls. And this is what the church has been called to do. But unlike the Old Testament, our reading this morning from Jeremiah 16, that speaks of God sending out fishermen in order to catch men for the judgment, here, Jesus sends out fishermen to catch men to rescue them from the judgment. And just in case we think that it is all about us and about our charisma, our power of persuasion, he says, I, I will make you become fishers of men. It is by his power that the church can grow. How often do we rely on our own wisdom and know-how in order to draw people in? And that does not mean we don't use our gifts and creativity that God has given us to evangelize or to invite people we know. It doesn't mean we don't hold church events for the community and the like. These things do draw people in and get their attention. But what are we relying on? What are we relying on? Who are we relying on to equip us to draw people in? It is Jesus. It is Jesus who we are following and depending on in order to equip us to catch fish. Charisma and marketing, these are both good things to have. But Jesus says, 
Follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. But let's first make sure that we are actually following Jesus. How? By studying what his word has said about following Jesus. About being a disciple. Because there is a cost. There is a cost to following Jesus. So thirdly we see it. Going on a little farther. You saw James the son of Zebedee. And John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. What will it cost us? It may cost us those who are closest to us. We see the next couple of fishermen not only left their jobs, but they also left their family. They left their father behind to follow Jesus. Now, just like for Andrew and Simon, this doesn't mean that James and John never worked again and never saw their father again. This doesn't mean that they ended their relationship and cut ties with all of their family altogether. This is usually what cults do, right? In order to separate you from your family and then they corner you and manipulate you and take advantage of you for their own agendas. But this shows us again the urgency of the call and their response was that they were willing to leave everything, both their livelihoods and those whom they loved the most to follow Jesus. It was a new beginning for them as they followed their Savior, and it could cost them everything. And in the end, when all is said and done, it is worth losing everything. And this is the same call for us today. We don't necessarily leave our work or our families or our neighborhoods But how many of us have family and other relationships that have been torn because of Jesus? Remember what Jesus said, I haven't come to bring peace, but a sword of division between father and son, mother and daughter, children and their parents. Because some will be on the side of truth and others will not. And they could come from our own households. Are we willing to say to family and friends, I see that you want to go that way, but I can't follow you. I must go this way and follow my Savior. Some of us have been blessed with Christian families and we don't need to make that choice. But many of us at some point or another will have to make that hard choice to leave our own families to follow Christ. For he says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Are we willing to risk cutting ties with our own family or friends to follow the Lord? 
Now again, we're not purposely called to cut ties with family, though we may want to, for other reasons than following Jesus. Because usually the problem is not that we cut ties with family. That's usually not the case, is it? They cut ties with us for following Jesus. Why? Because there's no longer common ground. We are called to cherish different things. We will apply Christ in our lives. And they won't. When we sin, we are bothered by it. We are burdened by it. And they say, yeah, that's no big deal. Everybody makes mistakes. We desire to repent. And they respond, repent for what? We will seek to live as Christ and put on Christ. And they will ridicule and shame us. Even if it's behind our backs. We will love them. But they will hate us. That's the cost. That's the cost. At this time in the narrative, Jesus' ministry and mission seems unimpressive. It seems small at its beginning. He may have seemed to many as an insignificant character from an insignificant province in Galilee, calling for insignificant, flawed, and vulnerable characters, sinners, to establish his kingdom. And oftentimes, the church will be made to feel as though we are insignificant. Even today, as we've seen these cycles, right, where the church grows and expands and then it gets cut down and it shrinks. We even here, We'll think of ourselves sometimes as being insignificant. In light of the tragic rejection of God in this world. Is this how we think of ourselves? Individually? Or as a church? Do we believe that we are insignificant? The right answer should be yes and no. Just like these fishermen, it doesn't matter what the world says, and it doesn't matter what the world would consider us. Because it's all about how God considers us and how God is using us, it is about who is equipping us, as Paul says. And he says this to us as well. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. 
so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Just as the Lord told Zerubbabel, hope I pronounced that right, not by my might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. He will accomplish what he wills through us. Like these four fishermen who would go on to be the foundation of the church that would spread the message of the gospel around half of the world. This insignificant church would grow larger than they could ever imagine. As it was promised to Abraham that his offspring would be as the stars in the sky. Now that might not happen here. But God will establish his kingdom. He will do what he wants through us as instruments. John goes on to become bishop of Ephesus. Peter travels to Rome. Andrew goes as far as the borders of Russia. They brought this message of the kingdom to the world. And it even affects to this day our calendars. Our calendar year is B.C. and A.D. Before Christ and Anno Domine, I think. They've changed that many times. They, they try to change it, but they can't. Or as some have said, it is the year of our Lord, 2021. Because to follow Jesus is to turn our attention from ourselves and our desires and turn to God and the needs of the world. Now, let's not be mistaken. It's not what the world says they need that we turn on to their needs too. I'm all mixed up. But it's what God says they need. Not what they say they need. These days they say, well, we need affirmation. But the message of the gospel says you need to repent and believe the gospel. What the world needs today ultimately is to turn away from their sin, believe the good news of the king, follow Jesus, and be gathered into this kingdom so that we can all say with John in Revelation come Lord Jesus come Amen let us pray